Welcome to Sharkpedia, where your hosts, Megan and Amani, a couple of shark researchers that want to bring the science to you. We're creating a space to learn all things sharks and their relatives, answer your questions, and learn from the legends in the field. Get ready to jump in. Let's dive deep into the world of sharks. Hello, hello, Sharkies. Welcome back to Sharkpedia. This is Amani and Megan. And we are so excited for this episode. We have Dr. Mark Royer here today to talk with us about scalloped hammerheads. Uh, Dr. Royer, would you please introduce yourself to our audience? Well, everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Mark Royer, and uh, I am one year out of completing my PhD. Uh, I was over at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, with under Dr. Kim Holland and Dr. Carl Meyer. And uh, yeah, this is all work that was not, not a direct part of my thesis, but it was more of a side project that developed while I was conducting my thesis work. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, how how is the post uh, graduate life? <laughs> Asking as current grad well, students. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, postgraduate life uh, during the COVID era certainly has its challenges. Yeah. Um. So it was. Uh, I was able to navigate and finish up uh, my PhD in the best way that I, in the best way that I could. And I was, of course, doing defense and everything over Zoom, which worked out really well. Um, it was nice to have that reach of an audience so that way people you know it's hard for people to come to Hawaii if they're not there so that way people could tune in whether they're all the way like my brother in Scotland or my family all the way over in Maryland so it was very nice to have that opportunity yeah that's um, awesome. and uh since then it's been into the going into the field of applying for postdocs fun on to the next challenge yeah, <laughs> yeah. I actually really like the like zoom de- like defenses because I've been able to watch so many of my friends' like defenses and see what it's actually what it actually looks like when you just do the like presentation part and then they move obviously to the private part with their committee. Um, but I like kind of hope that they keep that so that when I like defend in five years, I can have all my family watch and my friends watch. That just sounds like it's it would be just amazing to have such a large reach in comparison to what you'd normally have. Yeah, uh, one of the best parts was. Um the teachers who wrote my letters of recommendation back in high school were able to tune in to hear it, oh which they wouldn't have otherwise done that if it was just in person. So that was kind of like one of the silver linings to this whole, like this was, this was back in May. So this was still when like things were drastically shifting um, all of a sudden. So it was kind of a silver lining uh, to that development. Yeah. And how cool for your teachers to be able to see you at like pretty much the very end of your uh, your schooling. That's awesome. It's yeah. really cool to see you from start to finish. Yeah. <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah, I definitely know some friends that um, were able, even before the pandemic, that just hosted up Zoom. And I actually, I had only used Zoom one time before the pandemic, and it was for defense. Uh, so it's definitely, I want to keep it going too, because I think it's awesome to be able to just jump in and, and see all these people and what they've accomplished. If you can't travel there, it's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So as per usual, um, Megan is going to read the summary for this article that we're going to be talking about, and then we are going to dive into it. I am super excited to talk about this paper. 
I am equally super excited to talk about this paper. Uh, so this paper that we talked about or we've read for this podcast today is titled Scalloped Hammerhead Sharks Swim on Their Side with Dial Shifts in Roll Magnitude and Periodicity. The authors were Dr. Mark Royer et al. And it was just published last year. So the summary of this article is as follows. In a previous study by Payne et al. in 2016, they found that great hammerhead sharks will swim on their sides up to 90% of their swimming time at a between like a 50 and 75 degree angle. A wind tunnel experiment with a shark model demonstrated that the side swimming can actually reduce drag by up to 10% compared to when they're swimming upright. Scalloped hammerhead sharks have a similar body plan with a longer dorsal fin than the length of the pectoral fins. Therefore, Dr. Royal and his colleagues set out to see if scalloped hammerheads did a similar side swimming behavior to reduce that drag. Now, they did some really cool stuff that I'm so excited to ask about to test this theory. They used something called a triaxial accelerometer tag, and they combined this with a depth and temperature archiving tag. And they housed it in a foam float that was rated up to 2,000 meters deep. I already have so many questions about all of this. And then they equipped it with a time release so that at a certain time period, the whole contraption would pop off the animal and come back up to the surface so they could recover those tags and download all the information. And not only that, but they tagged the animals with a video logger. This is so much equipment and that's so cool. It's so much information that you gathered. And what you inevitably found was that scalloped hammerheads did exhibit that side swimming behavior as well. They have a larger dorsal fin to pectoral fin height, and it was actually larger than the great hammerheads. So they spent about 48% of their time swimming during the day and 82% of their time side swimming at night. So I found that really interesting. And they also had a very clear change in behavior from how they swam during the day than they did at night, which was very distinct at that sunrise sunset. So... Yeah, let's jump into this. This was so cool. There was so much information that you got from a lot of really cool tags. So let's just kind of start there since we talked about kind of a lot of equipment and some of our listeners might not be familiar with these archival tags or an accelerometer tag. Uh, so Dr. Royer, do you mind just starting with what these tags exactly were and how did you combine them all onto the animal to get the information that you needed? Sure thing. This was kind of a new field that's developing in this area of shark researchers, general uh, megafauna research in the aquatic realm, where that's where we're taking all these different sensors and combining them all into one to get some really high resolution data on just almost everything that you possibly could on your animal. In this case, it was the scalped hammerhead. And actually not mentioned in this paper, uh, because it wasn't relevant to this study, but that was also included in that was also there was a temperature probe that was going into the shark's muscle to measure their body temperature. So on top of what? all those things, we had temperature probes as well. Some tags even had had impellers to measure swimming speed. Some had magnetometers. So this Wait, was what's a magnetometer. A magnetometer is kind of like an um, just like how there's a triaxial accelerometer. A triaxial magnetometer uh, measures the uh, magnetic magnitude in the X, Y, and Z direction. So that can be used to everything from the sharks, or there's another way of getting the sharks orientation, but it can also tell you what their compass heading is as well too. <laughs> that uh, is so amazing. This, so the, the, I, yes, it, it is a treasure trove of data that I can probably uh, pump out papers for until I 
retire at the age of 90. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> but um, that, that's because, that, and that's, um, that's because this project, this, even, I did this during my uh, PhD studies, but this wasn't actually a chapter in my PhD. This was a side project that suddenly developed while I was focusing on something else. Uh, the main purpose of why I developed these tag packages, that's commonly what they're referred to as in the literature where you combine all these sensors into one package and attach it to the animal. Uh, what I was hoping to study was another unique behavior um, that I can talk about, and this will have to be like another episode because there's so much to talk about, was this uh, deep diving behavior that scalped hermits do where at night they behave kind of like the like a short-finned pilot whale well, they, or a beaked whale where they dive down hundreds and hundreds of meters to what? forage on deep prey. Um, and they, they spike down, shoot up to the surface. Uh, that study hasn't been published yet, so maybe we can save it, save it until then. Oh, yeah. But, um, We're talking hoping, about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what, what I was hoping, that, so what I was hoping, so we, we knew that they did this because from previous tagging studies that our lab did where we used um, mini pats, which are those pop-up archival tags or those, like, those little bulbous tags you can attach on the outside of a shark. They record, they record depth and temperature and light levels to get geolocation. They'll eventually pop up and they'll tell you what depths and what temperatures the shark experienced. And we learned from those tags in that uh, this was a lot of the tagging work that was done by uh, the graduate student, the older graduate students when I arrived in this lab. And we found that scalped hammerheads off Hawaii do these deep dives down to 800 meters. I wanted to ex examine uh, what their swimming activity is like and how they're regulating their body temperature when they go into such cold water. Hmm. And so it was after I got my first tag package deployed on a scalped hammerhead, which it took me years to learn how to routinely catch these animals and how to and how to put these tags on them as well too. So um, for, for you for you younger graduate students out there, um, I know there, it might seem like a lot of pressure to try to get your uh, graduate studies done in a sh short amount of time. Um, just the nature of this work does require a long work. So to, like I started my PhD or my, my graduate work in 2011 and I didn't finish until last year because it took so long to basically learn how to do this properly and safely both for the people on board and also for the animals as well too because scalped hemorrhoids are very fragile animals and kind yeah. of elusive as well so anyway it wasn't until i got my first tag package out on a scalped hemorrhoid that that paper from nick payne at all came out that showed that great hemorrhoids role and i thought that was absolutely fascinating so as soon as i got that data back from that first hemorrhoid i immediately looked at the accelerometer data which could tell you what the shark's orient body orientation was. And sure enough, I could see that signal where the shark is clearly swimming on its side for extended periods of time. So from every successive tag package that I put on these hammerheads for my PhD work, I'd also use that data to uh, analyze this rolling behavior as well. So that's kind of the neat thing with this new era of combining multiple sensors in these tag packages and getting higher resolution data is that there is so much you can do with them uh, so much like that that can't be fit into a single paper it's like each requires its own dedicated analysis for i mean that's kind of amazing too though especially if you have limited funds you can really allocate those funds on a few distinct animals and get like you said a lot of information out of them which is really exactly awesome. it's it's a very it's it, i would consider this to be a high risk high reward and part and so part of like of like what you mentioned there is that the foam i was using is rated to 2000 meters and so what was nice about this project and something that you'll find uh, throughout your graduate careers is uh, funding is hard to come across, especially these days. Yes. Um, that's another casualty of the COVID era where funding sources have sometimes dried up a bit. 
you have to be creative with the tools that are given to you and just uh, doing field work alone that by itself uh, requires a lot of money and you sometimes you have to re uh, rely on the on the support and infrastructure of where your institute is and luckily enough our uh, lab at Hawaiian Institute of Marine Biology had a lot of um, logistical support to do this project but also too it's a uh, finding other making connections and finding getting creative with other materials so that foam that I use to integrate all those separate um, instruments into uh, that was actually leftover foam that was cut off when they were uh, used on the on the University of Hawaii's uh, deep submersibles that the oceanography department uses to do their deep sea research. Oh, cool! Uh, so around the submarine, they have to use that syntactic foam as ballast, and any parts that cut off are rather are useless for them. But that foam is very expensive as well. Uh, but I don't need something the size of a dinner table. I just need something the size of a brick. Yeah. And so they said, you know, we have these boxes of cut pieces of foam that aren't any use to us go in there and help yourself here's some foam if i if, if, if i had to buy that foam myself i would have had to have paid 400 dollars per square foot of it man so it's, it's things like that where it's it's good to um yeah uh look, look within your community and form connections and th things just things like that can make all the difference in the world of um being able to uh, conduct the research that you want to and as for the um, some of those other instruments on there, like the, the temperature and the depth recorders were left over from a previous study that my advisor did on big eye tuna where they were measuring their body temperature. Those were wildlife computer Mark 9 tags that have a stalk. Uh, so that's how I was able to measure the body temperature. And so those, instead of putting them into a tuna, I just put them onto my tag package. Hmm. And then I, so the funding, I was able to use those to buy the expensive accelerometers. Um, as well as the satellite tags from wildlife computers that I could put on there to make sure I can find that tag package when it pops off again. Yeah, uh, I, I could zero in. On, I, I could. Uh, it would send off as when, when those tags pop off. They would send off a satellite signal. Mm -hmm. um, I could get a notification for that, and then it would give off a VHS VHF beep that I could zero in on, and retrieve it. And so things like that, like using um, like leftover tools, leftover instruments. Um, really helped cut costs down and got, got the job done. And so there are some times where you can buy these packages pre-assembled, but that costs a lot of money, which is funding I did, I, money I did not have at hand right. at the time. So basically I took all, the, all these things together um, and then I would just go into my lab late at night and I, would, I don't think anyone knows this, but I'll tell everyone now, I would like blare the Iron Man soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just like start uh just like start getting creative and just start assembling these things until eventually I like came out with these tag packages that would do that would basically act as like a um like a flight recorder for a shark. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So when you you mentioned how they pop off and basically like for our readers who don't know what this means, the whole package right would float to the service basically and you'd have to actually go physically get it. Right. Yes. This. Yes. So there's those of you who have done shark tagging or just any type of tagging for fish or any large animals. You know, there's it, tagging is a very generic term in that there's many different types of tags that use it to perform many different functions. Uh, these particular tags, uh, they do not transmit a location um, unless it's at the surface. But these are attached to the animal, and it was not fixed in a way. It wasn't like on the dorsal fin. The antenna wasn't on the dorsal fin, so it would let me know. When, it was at the surface. I wouldn't know where it was until it popped off. But uh, 
Yes, and because the accelerometer will record at 16 or 32 hertz per sec, so that's 16 or 32 readings for both the X and the Y and the Z axis uh, per second. That's wow. a lot of data so that yeah. you, can't, you can't transmit all that. That's way too much. You have yeah. to physically get that uh, data back in hand. So in order to do that, you have to physically take that instrument, that sensor, that logs all that data and get it back to you and plug it into your computer to get all those millions of data points back. So these, so these tag packages are set up in a way where it's kind of like the, kind of like how those like those pop-up archival tags come up to the surface. Those are meant to transmit data, but it's at a much lower resolution. Whereas these ones, when they pop up to the surface, there's a little miniature version of a fin mount tag attached to that tag package that would transmit its location. And that's that's the other challenge right there is that uh, you know we, we put so much investment in this tag package. Um, it takes a lot of work to get these on a shark, but you're not done. It's almost like um, kind of like an Apollo or like a Mercury mission where everything has to go right yeah. uh, to the final step where you can just how you can send a person into space and into orbit. Um, if they don't come back to Earth to safe and sound, then it, the whole thing's a failure, just like how <laughs> you can go through all the work of putting this tag on a shark. It can get all that data. But if you don't get that tag back in your hand and if it doesn't download data, then all that effort uh, was for nothing. And also, right. if you don't get that tag back, then everything attached to it, which costs a lot of money, yeah, is it's also gone. Go is gone. <laughs> it's so floating around the ocean somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> so, so it took a lot. So that took that took a lot of grit as well, uh, where um, it, it took a and it took a lot of strategic planning is, is planning too. So the other the other the nice thing was that by cutting costs, um, uh, as I was saying earlier, how was I able to cut costs for de designing these tag packages? I could use that money um, to help pay. Uh, boat operators um, to take take me on their boat at the last at a last minute sec or a last minute notice to go find these things. Um, you know, around the Hawaiian Islands, uh, there's a lot of ocean around here and not much land. So there's a, there's a there's a, a very high possibility for something to just go floating off and it will go into the Pacific Gyre or maybe it'll land in, on the shores of Japan 50 years from now. Oh my gosh. Um, I don't have time to wait for yeah. that. So with like needle in a haystack. <laughs> in the in the current in the currents really rip. So thanks to uh, a friend and colleague of ours, uh, Jeff Muir, uh, who's was a technician in our lab. Uh, when these things popped up, thankfully they're all around Oahu, mm -hmm. uh, which that, that was that was kind of lucky because these sharks can migrate. They can move long distances in a short period of time. Uh, Did you get all of them back? I did actually. I got oh, all of them back. That is amazing. <laughs> Are and you so kidding? Like, almost all. So almost all of them popped up like outside of our base. Some of them popped up on the opposite side of the island. So we'd have to get up. So we would have to meet up at like three o'clock in the morning, drive a boat uh, for hours on end. And and like we we when you deploy these things, you want to we deploy them in um, calm water because we we don't want to be in heavy waves when we're tagging these right. animals. Yeah. But you can't predict what the sea conditions will be seven, twenty, twenty-five days out. Uh, into the future so you just kind of roll the dice and sometimes we'd have to go out into eight foot seas at three o'clock in the morning and oh my go gosh. no thanks grab these things. and luckily he's also he's a he was a commercial fisherman and he yeah. he's used to those kinds of things so we would uh thankfully go grab these things before, like and you have to grab them with like within that day because otherwise they'll get too far away and yeah you, you'll need something like a noah ship to go search for them but obviously i couldn't do that yeah so speaking of the length of time, right, for each of these tag attachments. How did you 
decide how long the like whole tag package was going to stay on the species and like why did you choose the specific variables that you did that's a good question so the so the the uh, tag interval so if you, for those of you who have read the paper you'll see that the, the tag and the durations were uh the first one was seven days the next one was like 14 days and the ones after that were 21 or the majority were 23 days uh that's because the um as i was saying earlier the perp the original purpose for doing this tagging was to examine that deep diving behavior for these scalped hammerheads um that was the focus of my phd uh the tricky part was in order to catch those sharks, I had to wait until they came into Kaneohe Bay. That's on the windward side of Oahu. That's where they were in a shallow area near our lab where we could reliably catch them. Um, they'd do this during their summer migration into the bay where they would follow the females. The, the female uh, adults would come in and give birth to their pups. The males would follow suit. Uh, so that was our easiest time to catch them. Outside of that, it's very hard to catch a scalped hammerhead. Hmm. However, uh, when they're in the bay, they kind of stay around the shallow areas for a little bit. For uh, It can be a random time. They can either just stay in there for like a few days, a few weeks, or longer. And so if I wanted to capture that deep diving data, I had to put these tags on these sharks for a extended duration. So it, had, it couldn't just be three or five days, which is kind of like the usual deployment you do for these types of tags. I had to push it out to uh, weeks uh, so I could... So I know I would, I would have that time when like they're done doing their work in the shallows and they would head off for a few days. And then they would go offshore and do multiple nights of those deep dives. Were the seven day increments just like so you could get something back and see if it was long enough? Yes, that because um, that seven day one, well, that was the first one I've ever put a tag package out on a scalped hammerhead before. So that was kind of like that was me kind of like um, getting braver and braver and <laughs> testing my luck. In this and that I didn't want to do the first deployment for 23 days because I wanted to make sure that one I could get these things on a on a scalped hammerhead get the data that I need um, and get that tag back at a uh, reliably get that tag back even that even that first one was quite a journey to get because it popped off uh, we didn't get a signal from it we, we got a weak signal I had to go all the way to the very tip of um, kind of point on Oahu so basically I had to like walk to either we had to, my interns and I had to walk across a very dry and hot landscape and in the middle of June in Hawaii in the, in the baking sun, walk to the very tip of the very walk to the very tip of the island and point our antenna out and then hear the signal and we could hear it's floating away. So we thought the thing was gone. Um, thankfully, um, our colleague Jeff, who I mentioned earlier, uh, got on the phone, got me in touch with a fisherman. Sure enough, three o'clock in the morning, he says like, or he says like, you know, meet this guy at two o'clock in the morning at the Haleva Boat Harbor. And we boated for um, for like 10 hours, able to find the thing and get it back. So that was just the first 10 one. 10 hours? <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. That, I mean, you just said that so subtly. <laughs> yeah. What was, do you have like an average time that you had to go out for, to get each of these receivers that popped off? You, you we typically had to, we had to get them back within 24 hours from when we first, from when they first popped up to the surface because anything longer than that, the currents would have taken them too far away uh, from the island. I mostly mean like from when you like got on the boat to go like retrieve them, like was 10 hours a normal amount of time that you had to be on the boat? For the ones that popped up far away, yes. Uh, the one we got lucky, and sometimes one, some of them would pop off off offshore of Kaneohe Bay. That's the, the Kaneohe Bay is where our institute was located. So that one, uh, 
that would take about like that was about like a three to four hour or five hour journey um it, it could be shorter than that but they always popped off on like days when we had heavy seas so we would have to carefully ca- ca- carefully steer the boat like in these heavy waves to make sure we don't capsize or anything like that while while also trying to you know wave this antenna around to try to find this thing and and, and also it's like um as, as you know it's like uh trying to find something in the ocean that's um no matter how brightly colored orange it is uh when you've got heavy waves it can be uh 20 feet in front of you and if there's a wave in front of you you're not going to see it so it takes a lot of a lot more added effort in those heavy seas to find these things yeah you must have gone through a lot of drama mean <laughs> it was it, it it's like well like i think well i didn't um at those times because when well, if, you're, if you're the one um uh, well in some cases if you're the one driving the boat or like if the fear of oh my gosh i'm gonna lose my phd if i don't get this thing back uh that, that that's enough to like kind of like psych you out of whatever <laughs> uh nausea you would have yeah, no matter how no heavy seasonal, the seasonal. So if, for you. When, 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 when you've got that much at stake to like get these things back at um yeah, it's it's the, that's the best relief against any kind of season. You have more right things is... to worry about. Exactly, yes. <laughs> I mean, that's what I was going to ask. What was that feeling like when you got those tags back? And then, like, how did that feel by the end when you actually got every single one back? Because shark scientists that I've talked to typically say, oh, yeah, I lose, like, a large percentage of my tags. Yes, it was, um, it was a major sense of relief to... Uh, know that I had the sample size that I needed and not knowing that this was even going to be pulled off. Like I said, this was a very high risk, high reward project. And um, the the best, I think the best one is the very last one that we retrieved. Actually, that one was not retrieved um, by boat. That was a tag that was initially lost. And that one was deployed on a shark. We never heard from it. Uh, so, and, but that was like my 12th deployment. I thought like, well, that was kind of the, the icing on the cake and if it doesn't if it didn't succeed then you know it's a loss but at least we have what we needed but uh that was in i believe that was, yeah, it was 2018 when that tag was deployed summer of 2018 exactly one year later in 2019 we got a message that um uh, woman uh, liana robinson from niihau huh? um the furthest the furthest island in the main hawaiian chain they found that tag a year later on the beach of Niihau and they're able to, and we, we have our contact information on there. They're able to get in touch with us and return that tag to us. And that was the one that had the video camera on it. So we could see the footage of what the shark was doing while That's it was so swimming. Lucky. So yes. So wow. we were, we were, we were very grateful to the Robinson family for their help in that. Yeah. Whenever you go to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, they always talk about how, one of their tags um, on like one of the sharks that they tagged, the tag like ended up in the back of someone's like car in their trunk and like was floating around for like a year in someone's trunk. And they were like, this shark is definitely not on land. Like it's not yes. driving around going to Safeway. So that's so yeah. awesome that she like actually called and was like, hey, I found something of yours. <laughs> yes, it was it was very nice of them. And, and in fact, there's a... um. A very a similar story to that, that in that uh, the first time I ever used one of these tag packages for my own studies, um, it was actually for my first chapter for my PhD, where I was doing this on a similar a similar study on six scaled sharks. Those those are a big, large, deep sea shark uh, that we have here off Hawaii, and uh, the first tag that popped off 
again, same, we had, there was again, the same drama went through where we didn't hear from the tag initially. Eventually it comes up to the surface a day and a half late. It stayed on the shark because that muscle, that um, probe measuring temperature in the muscle um, was pinched in there. Mm. And six seal sharks are rather sluggish, especially compared to a hammerhead. So when they're just kind of slowly swimming around the bottom, that thing stayed with it for an extra time. So when you don't hear from this tag, you don't, you're wondering what happened to it. Yeah. Uh, eventually it popped off. Uh, my lab mate, James took me on his personal boat to go find it. And seas were rough. It was kind of like a mogul course out there. A lot of, a lot of us got sick. And when we went to the position where we thought it was, uh, we eventually heard it coming. We were the next satellite fix was coming from inland of the Island. So we had to take the boat all the way back. Uh, and then my, uh, girlfriend at the time, now wife. <laughs> uh, we we saw this signal coming from uh, the town of Waimanalo on Oahu. So we were like, okay, we know this thing is inland. So it's got to be, it must have been picked up by a fisherman or some boater out there. So we had to go into our car and then drive around Waimanalo with our little headphones on and our little antenna, like pointing at houses, waiting to hear these uh, satellite signals from this tag being given off. <laughs> Um, uh, and sure enough, an event, like we went, so we were, we were eventually going door to, we were like knocking on people's doors saying like, Hey, have you seen this yellow brick with, the, with, um, uh, antennas from it? People were very friendly. And eventually late at night, we eventually came across this house in a cul-de-sac that, um, or these, um, uh, older men were like out on, out on their driveway, just having a few drinks and have a like celebration of some kind. We walked up to them and asked them if they were out on the water that day. And if they had seen some type of uh, motion graphic device that was yellow and had antennas on it, and they just lit up, and one guy's like, "Yes, yes, I did." He had it in his truck. He got it out, and he was. When we told him that it was attached to a shark, he was ecstatic because he was telling everyone on the when, we, when they were out fishing for a lua or giant trevally that day, and when they when he picked it up, he was, he had a bet with everyone on the boat. They says like this was probably a, some type of shark tag, and no one else believed him. So we were there to validate oh his. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm sure he was so happy. So it's things like so it's it's things like that where th this type of work will definitely get you in touch with the community and um uh so if for those of you young uh, graduate students who are in the midst of doing some project like this or are planning to do some project like this uh definitely have, have some like have some like rewards set up for when people do this. If, if for one it is a it's going to be a huge relief to you when they find it. Two, it's like one of the best um outreach it's like one of the most like spur of the moment like out best uh, spur of the moment outreach um moments you can have where when you tell people like what you're doing what these tags are for they they are so excited to hear it because now they're a part of it that they helped recover this uh th this uh instrument for you that was a part of a shark yeah and so have things like um like we we, we give we just we give them some like some money and we, and we give them some lab t-shirts as well huh yeah, it's always good to make those connections with fish. Free t-shirts. I'll always yeah. take a free t-shirt. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that is amazing. I mean, getting that equipment out there is such a feat on its own. Um, and then you got this awesome information about the scalloped hammerheads. So let's talk about that. I personally had never actually heard of this rolling behavior. However, I work, you know, not in tropical places where you see hammerheads so is that something that you could typically see like if you were diving have you seen that did you know that they did that side swimming behavior i myself uh prior to the study i had not heard of that actually as well 
either. I, I feel like for um, most of the times when people see great hammerheads, uh, usually when I've seen or like when I've seen photos or footage of great hammerheads, it's usually at that site in Bimini where they're but that's a provision site, so they're swimming in their bottom, and that's not like their usual. So you're not seeing them just kind of generally cruising. Um, in terms of for scout hammerheads, um, they're kind of, unless you go to the right place in the world, they're kind of elusive or uh, difficult to find sometimes. In uh, the times where I've seen them in the water, it was very fleetingly. Um, however, there were um, people who have uh, seen them at their aggregations in places like such as the Galapagos uh, or in the um, Gulf of California, and in our particular case, off the big island of Hawaii on the Kona coast. Uh, there are these aggregations of female scalp hammerheads that are seen during the winter time, and some wildlife or underwater photography friends of ours, uh, Darren Verbeck and Corey Fultz, have taken these photographs of these aggregations of hammerheads off the Big Island of Hawaii. Wow. And from the, for just from those photos alone, you can see it, it's it's hard to tell because they're in like the in the open ocean, so you see around them there's nothing but blue, so it's hard to see a ref to get like a reference as to which way is immediately up but just relative to each other you can you can see some hammerheads are like at like a 45 or 90 degree angle from each other right so regardless of which one's upright you know that like some of them are swimming at a strange angle so at least um for those who have seen that uh they they know that they've known that like scout hammerheads do sometimes swim at these weird angles uh but you know when a shark kind of leaves our sight uh what they do for re for the rest of the day is kind of a little unknown to us so it was it wasn't known just how prevalent this was and how they do it uh they actually spend the majority of their time swimming at these strange uh swimming ang banked angles yeah so at this point in my life i've seen and or helped with around five scientific like tagging workups of great hammerheads and they all do the listing behavior when you release them so we'll like push them off the platform to push them into the water and they don't just swim straight off like most any other species do does. They always list off to the side. Meaning like at from, an angle. Yeah. So instead of just driving like completely straight, they'll like swim at an angle. Um, and then this paper came out and Dr. Catherine McDonald, who I've been working with, she was like, yeah, for all these years, all of the people who like do scientific workups on hammerheads were saying that their release condition was like fair or poor because with any other shark, them tilting on their side is like not what you want as a release behavior. Um, and so people would like swim them off and like try to make them like swim straight instead of off to the side. So everyone was just like messing with hammerheads when they were just trying to help themselves when we were releasing them. And we, we just saw, I saw three great hammerheads last week. Um, and one of the ones that we released listed at like a 45 degree angle. Um, when we released her and I was like this is crazy that like for all these years everyone just thought that they were not releasing well and trying to straighten them and the hammerheads in their heads are probably like can you just get off of me like I'm doing what's best for me <laughs> oh my gosh that's amazing <laughs> that's well that's very cool to hear because I I've, I've actually I've, I've only ever worked with scout hammerheads I've never done work with great hammerheads before so that's that's actually very cool to hear that like when you release them they will sometimes go at those banked angles <laughs> yeah and i think later in the paper you kind of mentioned that smaller species of hammerhead probably don't do that and when we release bonnet heads they don't list they just mm -hmm. they swim completely straight like any other shark that you'd want which is like super interesting and again like they don't have the huge dorsal fin um that hammerheads and scalped hammerheads do but it's like very interesting especially to read it in a paper for the first time that i have 
um, to like actually see that distinction in words because I kind of like subconsciously knew that, but I never like said it out loud to anyone. And then I was reading it in the paper and I was like, oh yeah, that like bonnet head that I released three days ago just like swam off straight. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so let's kind of talk about that for a second because Dr. Royer, you mentioned in your paper that you think that it the dorsal fin needs to probably be larger than the pectoral fin length for them to do this behavior and it helps them reduce drag. Do you think it's because specifically because that dorsal fin is longer that it helps them kind of lift up in the water column when they're on their side? Yes, th this is actually work that would have to be done, I think, in a follow-up study to validate that. So that's the hypothesis, but it, it's a, th there's the strong evidence for that comes from the previous paper that was by Nick Payne et al, where they looked at great hammerheads, where they actually did the, um, a wind tunnel study where they built a model of a great hammerhead. And that's how they found that by putting that, by putting that model in a wind tunnel and then rotating it at different banked angles and changing the pitch on it, they found that when that shark is pitched at a certain angle, uh, or I'm sorry, rot uh, rolled at a certain angle and at a certain pitch, um, it actually achieves greater lift uh, than as if it was swimming upright and also has greater hydrodynamic efficiency that way. So therein is like the strong, like the, the reason uh, for why swimming at, a, at a, a rolled angle like that is important for these species. And having that larger dorsal fin is helpful because when you are, when that great hammer is pitched at an angle and same with the scalp hammer head, the dorsal fin then becomes another lip surface because when it's at an angle, it's almost like, an, it's almost like another sail. wing. And so the effective lift span, so that's from the tip of the dorsal fin to the tip of the um, upright pectoral fin is great. Well, like when you go across the body is actually greater than from the tips of the two pectoral fins uh, when the shark is upright. So by rolling onto its side, the effective lift surface for the whole shark across the body is increased. So that's how that's why you have greater that's why these sharks have greater lift when they swim at their side and of greater hydrodynamic efficiency when doing so. That's so cool. Yeah. So it's it's also yeah, so that's and going back to your point when you say when you release these animals, um by having if that's like the, the the point where they have the greatest amount of lift and possibly stability, um after doing after doing something like getting worked up after tagging, it's almost like they that's probably like their default is to like their bodies could even be like going to that state, um, whether they're intentionally doing it or, or if that's just like the way their body kind of naturally orients itself uh, when swimming through the water, because that's the um, kind of like the most like hydrodynamic uh, efficient position. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that the dorsal fin of juvenile hammerheads wasn't necessarily as proportionally large as in adults. Um, do you think that there's an advantage to that for younger scalloped hammerheads to not have such a tall dorsal fin in comparison to adult ones? That's actually fascinating. This is actually another good lesson for um, uh, uh, younger researchers as well, too. So, so that, that we said that in the paper because we were repeating the same numbers that we got from the same reference that uh, Nick Painedog got for when they plotted their dorsal fin to pectoral fin size ratio for their paper. And in the paper that they cited, it's way back from the 70s, um, where they measured a variety of shark fins um, from different species. They found like that initial paper way back found that, that like, it, like the recorded numbers showed that the dorsal fin was smaller than the pectoral, or the, the dorsal fin was smaller than the pectoral fin for scalp hammerheads. 
when I looked, when I was able to find that paper and looked it back up, those measurements came from what looked like to be a majority of them were like juveniles or subadult sharks. And I, I don't know what the state of those sharks were, if these were left dead on a fishing boat for a long time, um, if they were dried up or in like some. So I, I, found that, I found that very interesting too, because we actually have, we have a lot of juvenile and subadult scalped hammerheads back at our institute in captivity at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology. And so we actually had uh, undergraduates do a little undergraduate research project. Um, Emily Rose Gutgeld and Kelsey Maloney uh, took measurements of those ju of the scout, juvenile scalp hammerheads that we had that were alive and well, and actually found that they actually had the same ratio as adults. So oh. going back, so that, that's that again when we talk about the um, important part of science is um, repeatability. Re repeatability, and we found this time actually from what we found here is that these juveniles actually do have larger dorsal fins than their pectoral fins. So was the previous study in the same part of the world? Was it also in Hawaii? No, that previous that one was back in uh back in Florida. So is it possible that maybe they have slightly different morphology between Florida and Hawaii? It is possible. So anyone who's listening to this in Florida, if you have access to juvenile scalp hammerheads, take some fin measurements and Yeah. <laughs> Valid. See, see, see if that's valid. See if that initial paper from the seventies was and was a measurement error, or if indeed there is some type of difference in that. Well, and then if in Florida, if their dorsal fin isn't as long proportionally to their pectoral fins, I wonder if they exhibit that rolling behavior in Florida. That's a very good question. My brain just like immediately went down this whole like, oh my gosh, this yeah. is, I have so many more questions. It's definitely something that I think people should look at for a, a lot of these species, actually. It's like, even though we, we speculate that the smaller hammerhead species don't do this, um, it'll be still nice to validate that. And also, too, there's also the, um, we still, no one's looked at the smooth hammerhead yet either, which is similar in size to the scalped hammerhead and great hammerhead. Um, and also there's the uh, the infamous Carolina hammerhead, which, yeah. which looks just like a scalp just hammerhead. Just genetics are different. <laughs> um, but be fascinating to see if that behavior is exhibited as well. <laughs> I wonder, also winghead hammerheads? I mean, they're just weird. But I'm, like, curious because <laughs> their heads are so I'm, much larger than the rest of their body. I'm, I'm curious. I, th I think just, I, I, I have, like, a very hard time, like, with the mental imagery of a winged head swimming on its yeah. side. So that one, I'm, I'm going to say I probably definitely know, but stranger things have been observed Yeah, before, I mean, they but... don't really look like they should more, like, make sense anyway with, like, no, how they, large. It, it, they look exactly. like the head should just, like, drag them down completely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then I, okay, this is just a thought I had. I wonder too, and this is, again, I'm just speculating at this point, but if they're on, if they're side swimming and then because their eyes are on either side of their head on that cephalofoil, do you think it could be advantageous for them to see above and below them at a different angle? Because I know they have like 360 vision, right? With their cephalofoil head. Yes, that, that's a that's a very good question. That uh, what's so fascinating about this behavior it ties into so many of the other interesting aspects uh, of scalped hammerheads or just large hammerheads in general. And that uh, yes, having that um, having their eyes apart like that. There was that study that looked at the effective uh, field of or field of view for hammerheads and found that they have better binocular vision uh, or better uh, crossover between their right and left eye compared to other species of shark and that they have a very wide effective view of range. So 
orient, orienting yourself at that kind of angle only if it allows you to see both above you and below you as well too so it might be a survival instinct i wonder too mm-hmm. oh, but it's um so cool. what's, what's also fascinating too is that uh for, for the longest time uh people are wondered or hypothesized that that the shape of that head uh act, if that acted as a wing uh because if you look at the side of it, it almost looks like it's tapered like an aircraft wing hmm. But uh, there was that study that came out just recently that looked at the hydrodynamics of it, and they found that the head does not generate lift when it is there is doing level swimming. Um, in fact, if anything, it actually uh, produces a lot of drag for the shark to swim through. However, um, when it is, it doesn't take much of a pitch angle in the head for it to um, have some rapid uh, rapid force effects on the shark in order to do uh, tight turns. So. Well, um, going back to the wings, to, I'm sorry, to the, to the head sizes and, I mean, not the head sizes, the fin sizes of these animals. But uh, what, what I loved the most about this study was that uh, something that I find so fascinating about sharks, and I think a lot of people like about sharks, is that they remind people of airplanes. Yeah. In that uh, compared to other fish, because sharks have their rigid fins, uh, they're almost just like the control surfaces of an aircraft, just how an airplane has its ailerons, its rudder, and their eleva- elevators. Uh, sharks have their pectoral fins and dorsal fins and caudal fins uh, to control their orientation. Um, and they have their pectoral fins as to act as lift rendering surface, just like the wings of an aircraft. <laughs> and so it's, it's fascinating to look at all the different morphologies that sharks come in, in that if you're one of it's trying trying to design a shark (laughs) is almost like the same as designing an aircraft where depending on like what its role or uh what its purpose is uh is reflected in their morphology yeah and so with scalloped hammerheads they're what's another thing that's super fascinating about them you can see this in my in the accelerometer data is that they are also a highly maneuverable shark (laughs) yeah so this so something that i got to see firsthand is that we had scalloped hemorrhoids and sandbar sharks in captivity outside of our lab at the hawaiian Institute of marine biology uh they were this in the they were similar body length sizes but when we throw food into the water if a sandbar shark overshot the food it had to just come this like wide arcing turn to get back to it whereas the hammerhead could almost turn on a dime hmm. uh without banking its body just kind of quickly swivel, almost touch its head back to its tail in a very tight maneuver, um, tight maneuvering. And there's another paper that was done um, by Steve Kajira back in the day where he actually compared the maneuverability between hammerheads and sandbar sharks and just found how, how highly maneuverable scalped hammerheads are. Yeah, those are flexible sharks. Yeah, and what's fascinating is that, um, so it's, wondering why why is it important to have this side swimming behavior uh, there's a trade-off between maneuverability and stability yeah and in fish it's kind of like how there's a trade-off in maneuverability and stability in aircraft and so that the more stable you are the harder it is to be maneuverable and vice versa what's fascinating about what scalped hammerheads is that when they're in their upright position they are a highly maneuverable shark um, however, that probably creates more effort for them to keep themselves stable, to keep themselves upright. Um, 
However, when they transitioned and roll on their swim on their side and swim in more of a straight line pattern, they are possibly more stable that way. Um, and they're thus more e efficient swimming through the water in that orientation. So kind of like how you were saying earlier when you were releasing the great hammerheads, um, going into that kind of like that stability mode um, is, like I said, like probably like most ideal for them after coming off of something such as like uh, being worked up after tagging. Right. Yeah. It saves them energy. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting that you mentioned in the paper was about how their behavior changed from day to night. And so in the paper you discussed at night, they were doing like 82% side swimming. They might be traveling more at night. And then during the day, they're not on their side as much, but you think there might be more social behavior. So I wondered if you could kind of touch on that. Like what kind of social interactions do scalloped hammerheads engage in? Why would that stop them from side swimming um, during those times? That's a really good question. Um, some of those, some of the questions we actually don't know the answers to and require further study on, but some of that comes from previous uh, studies that were done by Pete Klimley, where he was observing hammerheads uh, off the Galapagos and in the uh, Gulf of California as well, where he noticed where hammerheads would kind of form aggregations during the daytime and then disperse uh, at night, either individually or in, or in small groups. And so from what I could see on the video footage that I got from my hammerhead was that it was only, the video was only recording during the daytime. So I don't know what its social life was like at night, but during the daytime, we could, I could see the shark swimming with, uh, join up with two other um, compositics as well, two other um, adult scalped hammerheads join in with it. And also something that I'm gonna do in a future paper is look at the magnetometer data, the, the compass heading data. And from what I'm seeing right now is that they're doing a lot more circle swimming where they just kind of like go to, they just kind of hold a spot and just kind of like swim in these like wide circles, kind of holding their position. They do that a lot during the daytime. And I would not see that at all during the nighttime. So that's more, whether it's some type of um, way of just socializing or if it's some type of like resting behavior, kind of like how spinner dolphins will come into shallow areas during the daytime and just kind of turn half their brain off and swim in these circles with its other spinner dolphin friends, whether scout hammerheads are exhibiting some type of social interaction like that too, while they're resting, but holding like a, like kind of like a tighter geographic area. Oh, that'd be and so cool. And then when, yeah. when nighttime <laughs> comes, it's time for them to head offshore, um, e either move the long distances that they want to, to for either migration or, or to move to different islands or to move to their foraging grounds that are further offshore. Uh, because we like when they do that, when they did, so I don't want to get too much into the deep dive part, but when they do these, their deep diving activity, they suspend that rolling behavior <laughs> um, during the actual dive. But when they come up during the surface interval, they will go back, they'll go back into that rolling behavior. Oh, that's so interesting. Do you see scalped hammerheads aggregate specifically by sex or were they with other males or other females? That's hard to say. Like we, we've seen, so like so, the people on the Big Island have seen those female-only aggregations. From what we can, t from what we can tell, uh, those are female-only aggregations off the Big Island of Hawaii during the winter months. Uh, those aggregations go for a long depth as well, too. So there could be males deeper, but we don't know. As far as we can tell, we've only seen females. 
um, in my video footage that I've seen from the shark, from the camera on my shark, there were only males with it. Uh, but however, from other studies where they've attached cameras onto other sharks around Hawaii, they've seen uh, mixed sex aggregations where there's males and females. So the, the short story to that is scout hammerheads have very, com they have very complex uh, social behaviors. Like even their mating is, uh, which has been documented is fascinating where the females kind of show themselves off in the middle of, in, in the center of an aggregation, the males trying to like, to try to so, like select for like the best male who or like to like kind of prime themselves up for the best selection for the males which you usually don't see that much in sharks uh so that's all i that's all we, like we really know um whether they stay segregated or if they are segregated indeed or if they are segregated how long they actually stay segregated from each other yeah um so there, there's a lot so there's a lot of social complexities that are yet to be studied with this species <laughs> oh that's so cool mm -hmm. Man, I just have so many other things that I feel like we yeah. could have a whole other episode just on the questions yes. that I feel like they definitely. Came up. <laughs> yes, there, there, there's there, there's a lot there's a lot of questions for the for this species. It's so cool. And um, I, I think um, let's see uh, the, the, if you if you're familiar with the work from uh, Kara Yopak, who has done a lot of work on shark brains, um, you'll see that hammerheads have the the largest and most complex brain. Yes. Uh, comparison to shark and comparison to older sharks and usually with that comes more and usually with a more complex brain comes more complex uh, social behaviors as well i think that's so cool that their brain is like somewhat more proportionally correct to their body size in comparison to most other sharks where you like do a dissection and their brain is like this large even though their body's really yes. big <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's so true is there anything else that we didn't touch on already, Dr. Royer, about this paper that we should talk about before we get to our favorite part of the podcast, which is field stories? Let's see. I think we touched on all the. Um, I think we touched on all the key parts. I, I, I did enjoy talking the similarities between sharks and airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that comes. I think that stems from my childhood. Like when I first got my teeth in, uh, first things I would eat would be those. Um, General Mills shark fruit snacks and the Thunderjet fruit snacks. Yes. And if you, if my parents were nice enough to send in the proof of purchases, where I was able to get a Mega Mouth toy with a glow in the dark mouth uh, in the mail for that's that. Fun. So that's fun. That's amazing. That's one of their... It was instilled in your childhood. They say you you are what you eat. So and I I ate shark gummies and a airplane gummies so here we are okay. here we are today <laughs> yes are. fantastic <laughs> yes so we would love to hear a field story from you um it does not have to be from this paper um but something that you think is funny or inspiring or just like one of your overall favorite field stories if you have any sort of internal mental ranking of them i tried to i tried to come up with just one in preparation for this but there's so many it's hard to choose we'll take more than uh, one yes. <laughs> But um, my, my, some of my favorite parts, actually, like this wasn't like technically a this technically wasn't in the field. I was just um, so our institute, the Hawaiian Institute of Marine Biology, is on its own island inside Kaneohe Bay on Mokoloi or Coconut Island. Uh, during my off time, I'd like to go swim around the island because it's a I, I like to swim and there's a beautiful reef that circles around the island. And during the summer months, when I do laps around the island, uh sometimes I would see scalped hammerheads swim by uh, just swimming around the island, just 
hanging the same, out. The same as me. And it's, it's, uh, it catches you off guard too. Cause the, the, the water clarity in the bay isn't, isn't fantastic. It's a bit murky and green. So sometimes you would, as you turn to breathe, there would be a scout hammerhead right there. So it's very cool to just casually interact with your study species in the wild like that. Yeah. But, um, I would say, I'd say my, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite field stories besides one of the ones I've already told of going door to door, looking for these tags or going into high seas, getting these things and being successful with getting them back. That's such a euphoric feeling. Um, especially when like earlier, when earlier in the day, you think you've lost it for good. I, um, I know I was going to say your field work is like we talked about already is a field story yes. in itself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but uh, when we were one, like when I was saying earlier, how we did a similar study like this on six skilled sharks, uh, there was a day where we went off to go. So we, we, we catch these things in ni- at 900 feet of water. We bring them to the surface, put this tag on them and try to get them back down as quickly as possible to keep the shark in good condition. And these were adult six skilled sharks. So they are, anywhere from like 13 to 14 feet long. And they're just, they're essentially like if Jubba the Hutt was a shark. <laughs> um, there's these, these big lofty bean bag. I feel like- Things with rough skin and green eyes. But Jeez. they- <laughs> That's not but a they, compliment. They, 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 yes, but they, they're, 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 but they're so, but they are so fascinating to see in person that just how prehistoric they are. But uh, when we went onto a field one day, we were tagging them. I had my, um again, my- uh, then girlfriend, um, now wife, <laughs> who was with us. Um, I brought her in the field that day to help us out, and we had we hooked up a absolute monster of a female six goat shark. And even though these things are sluggish, they are just so heavy, so they have a lot of power in like in their slow movement. <laughs> um, but when they come up to the surface and start thrashing around, that's just a lot of weight and a lot of momentum that they take with them. And so while we uh, while I was trying to got the shark the rope under the petrol fence to get it up to the boat uh my wife was trying to get a rope around the tail to secure it to the stern and this thing just launches its tail up in the air and back down and my wife's holding the rope and it almost like jerks and i was thinking like i was thinking oh my gosh i just took my girlfriend onto the field and i almost break her arm but luckily that <laughs> didn't happen she was okay <laughs> oh my we get the, we get the, we get the shark secured and uh again um another lesson coming up here at how uh, different skills can be helpful in your scientific career. Uh, we were trying to get this tag package out on a shark, but the, the band, the release band on it broke. So we felt like, oh, we're going to have to scrub it off for that day. But uh, my girlfriend was able to use her skills uh, as in making jewelry to actually get this band back together and get, actually get it attached onto the shark so that we could get this tag package out on this on this animal and let it go. Um, because catching these things takes a lot of effort and you need the right conditions to do it. So if you don't do it, then you might have to wait three months to try right. again. Shout out so, to your wife for um, saving the yes. day. <laughs> and then, um, it, well, it, it doesn't end there too, because when we, when we, when we released that shark, it, um, we were, tw- we, we hope for it to like shoot back down to the bottom, but this one was a little disoriented. So, and, um, and these sharks are positively buoyant, which is unusual for sharks. Most sharks are negatively buoyant. So this thing was kind of, when we released it, it was kind of struggling at the surface for a little bit. So I had to grab my fins, jump in the water and try to get on top of it and push it down. Um, it's a big shark and very buoyant. So it's basically just doing 
push-ups on the thing it wasn't getting anywhere it wasn't until i'd like grab <laughs> the chin and hoist it upwards and then get it to swim downwards so after that point we, we eventually came up with a drop shot system to send these sharks back to depth rather than relying on trying to swim it down <laughs> r- rather than try to take a giant i think the size of a car and swim it down to the bottom yeah no kidding what a day for your wife to be out there yeah like, see a field work <laughs> like yep this is what i do welcome (laughs) yeah and she got like a day that you actually caught something like i've gotten days like not catching anything which like wasn't for lack of effort it was just that nobody wanted to take the bait oh yes there's and yeah for all those days where there you're successful in getting tags out there's all the days that come before that of you strike out and yep it's you you think like you know how much chummer bait you use if there's nothing there there's nothing there so much unit per effort per unit effort yeah it's a lot (laughs) well thank you very much that was a great field story i am sure that she had a fantastic day and now thinks that your days are like sharks all the time constantly (laughs) (laughs) right and dr royer for our listeners uh where can they follow your work are you on twitter or anything I don't have any personal, actually, well, I've got a personal photography account where I talk about my research and because I also take photos of my research and research that I support as well. So that's on a shark mark photography. Um, that, there's a, there, that's a website. It admittedly needs to be updated. That will soon follow. But also there's an Instagram as well, shark mark photography. Awesome. Uh, there's also, but um, there's work that I've been affiliated with. Um, on a lot of pelagic shark conservation work that we've been done that's been done in hawaii um that's headed by dr melanie hutchinson um who works for both NOAA and university of hawaii uh and that one and so, so, so some of my research is linked in there uh if you go to sharktagger.org awesome yep and the, the, that's also the same as the uh, the handle shark tiger hawaii uh so that that's I'm not sure if this rolling behavior has been mentioned. I think it has been mentioned in there, but that one, there's a lot more other conservation work for pelagic sharks that you can read up in there as well, too. Great. All right. Well, go make sure to follow them at those places. And Dr. Ryder, thank you so much again for being here. I had so much fun getting to know this species more, and this rolling behavior is so interesting. I'm definitely going to be looking for that in the literature more from now on. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you both for having me. Uh, it was a lot of fun to be here, and I. I always love to like getting a moment I came to talk about scalp hammerheads because uh, for, for every facet about them, they're just the most one of the most fascinating shark species, and just what they're capable of and what they do is really extraordinary. I absolutely agree. All right, well, thank you so much, Sharkies, for being here with Dr. Royer this week, and until next time, swim you later. Hey Sharkies, if you've been enjoying Sharkpedia like we hope you have been, you can check out our Patreon, which is in the link tree in our bio on both Twitter and Instagram. And also don't forget to rate and subscribe so that other people can find our podcast and hopefully hop on the train of loving sharks. This episode was edited by Kayla Shue.